The case of Ainsworth Clegg, mentioned by secret Agent X, posing as Fannin, in his interview with the Skull, had stirred the city as it had seldom been stirred before. Clegg was an extremely wealthy man, the chairman of the board of Paramount Oil. His kidnapping by the servants of the Skull had been an audacious bit of business in itself, taking place in broad daylight right in front of the Paramount Oil building on Broad Street. Clegg, a man in his early fifties, was descending from his automobile at 10 a.m. The chauffeur was holding the door for him when three cars drove into the street, stopping one in front, one behind, and one double-parked alongside Clegg's limousine, thus blocking it off from view on three sides. From these cars there erupted a score of men armed with machine guns. They did not threaten, they acted. Two of the gunners raked the street in both directions, clearing it of living beings. Twenty people were killed by that fusillade. Other men struck down the chauffeur, while four of their number seized Clegg and bundled him into the double-parked car. Then the horde of criminals leaped back into the automobiles and sped away, delivering a parting volley at the radio car that just turned into the street. The radio car was wrecked, the two policemen in it killed. Pursuit picked them up within three minutes, but the car separated. Each one was followed for a while, but a strange thing happened in each case. At one point in the chase, each of the cars seemed to have disappeared from the face of the earth. One minute they had turned a corner, and the next minute, when the pursuers had come around the same corner, the quarry was gone. The police conducted a thorough search of the streets where the disappearance had taken place, but with no success. It seemed as if some mighty power of magic had waved a wand and caused the cars, with their vicious occupants and their prisoner, to vanish into thin air. The hue and cry was tremendous, but the next day it increased in intensity when there was delivered by mail at police headquarters an envelope containing nothing but a single card. On one side of the card was the picture of a skull. On the other side was a message, a message so preposterous in its demands it must have been written by a madman. It required that the sum of four million dollars in gold be raised by midnight the same day as ransom for Clegg. It made no threats, merely contained the one sentence, and it was signed, The Skull. The newspapers printed an appeal that afternoon from Clegg's family addressed to The Skull, stating that it was a physical impossibility to raise four million dollars by midnight, let alone in gold. It appealed to the skull to set a more moderate ransom, one that it would be possible to pay. Not even a millionaire, the notice stated, could pay four million dollars or even one million. People just didn't keep their assets in liquid cash. It was hoped that there would be some response to this appeal, some sort of word from the kidnappers. To the consternation of Clegg's family and business associates, not a word was forthcoming. For one week they waited in anxiety and dread, until the day that Mr. Elisha Pond found Ainsworth Clegg in the street. Mr. Elisha Pond, whose means no one questioned, was himself a rather mysterious personage whose goings and comings had long ago become the despair of society matrons. For months at a time he might not be heard from at all, and then, with no notice of his coming, he would drop into the banker's club and spend a few hours with a particular group of men who usually congregated there after dinner. Among these were Pelham Greer, the stockbroker, Jonathan Jewett, head of one of the largest insurance companies in America, and Commissioner Foster, 
at present head of the police department. Subsequently, Mr. Pond might be seen around town for as much as a month at a time, or else he might drop out of sight again the very next day. He had long been an enigma to his friends, and they had given up speculating as to what he did with his unaccounted-for time. Mr. Pond first saw Ainsworth Clegg as he was crossing the street on his way to the club. He was standing listlessly on one of the crosswalks of the subway construction job that had caused the whole street and many others in the vicinity to be ripped up for many months now. At first Mr. Pond thought the man was a beggar, from his dejected attitude, but a closer inspection showed that here was something far different from the casual mendicant. The man's eyes were vacant. He seemed to have no control over his muscles, for his jaw hung open. The man's whole frame seemed to sag and shake.